Finding your Bibles, Revelation 7. Revelation 7. Now, if you remember, let me just give a little bit of a review with regards to the previous chapters. I asserted over probably three or four times now that chapters 4 and 5 are foundational to the whole book. Because in chapters 4 and 5, John is afforded entrance into heaven where he sees God on his throne. And so in chapter 4, he sees the Father on the throne and everybody in heaven praises him for creation. Chapter 5, he sees Christ on the throne and everybody in heaven praising him for redemption. And that is important because it's a reminder to the persecuted church to which this epistle was written, that God in Christ reigns. That's really the fundamental point or purpose of the entirety of the 22 chapters. God reigns. And so in the fifth chapter, the lamb takes a scroll and nobody but the lamb is worthy to loosen its seven seals, to unfold that scroll and We said that the scroll fundamentally refers to the decrees of God, to the purposes of God, salvation, preservation, damnation. Everything that is going to happen is written on that scroll. And that was an encouragement to the churches because it reminded them that even the persecution to come, because as the seals are loosed, we find out the contents of the scroll and We saw last week that the first four seals, when they were broken, gave way to four horses. The first was the victorious gospel, and the latter three was persecution, tribulation, hardship, and death. And we said that those four horses run together from the first to second coming of Jesus. And then the fifth seal we saw in chapter 6. When that was opened, we saw the martyred Christians in heaven right now crying to God, asking him how much longer until he comes back, judges his enemies and avenges him uh, and avenges them. And then we saw at the end of chapter six, the sixth seal was the answer to those prayers and Jesus coming back. And we saw that terrible day of the lamb. At the end of chapter 6. So chapter 7 is really um, a time that takes place between the 6th and 7th seals. Because the 7th seal isn't opened until chapter 8. So chapter 7 is really, I guess, a continuation of the 6th seal. If there's judgment at the end of chapter 6, then there's salvation Chapter 7. So, chapter 7 is really a beautiful description of the church viewed from two perspectives. The first half of the chapter, verses 1 to 8, describes the church militant on earth. And then, secondly, uh, verses 9 to 17 describes the church victorious in heaven. So, these aren't necessarily two churches. They're the church viewed from two perspectives. 
There's a militant group or aspect of the church, and then there's a victorious one in the second part of the chapter. So let's read through it, and then we'll look at the chapter briefly under those two headings. The militant church, verses 1 to 8. The victorious church, verses 9 to 17. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Nephtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were healed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now we're going to see that uh, focus switches. And it's not the victory, it's not the militant church on earth sealed and protected. That's the focus. It's the victorious church in heaven praising God. Verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, the, so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. And lead them to living fountains of water, waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Obviously, this chapter ends with heaven. In the first sermon on the book of Revelation, I suggested that the book has seven cycles. The book of Revelation contains seven cycles that depict the time between the first and second comings of Jesus. This ends the second cycle. And thus we'll see chapter 8 and following picks back up Jesus' first coming. Similar themes of persecution and hardship, God preserving them. And then it ends in chapter 11 
with Jesus' second coming, judgment, and heaven. That then starts the next cycle in chapter 12. If we were to rinse our minds from most of everything taught us over the last 50 years about the book of Revelation, rinse our minds from most of what's been taught by modern evangelicals concerning the book of Revelation over the last 50 years, interpret the book in light of the Old Testament imagery it borrows from, especially I think of the books of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. John largely leans on those three books. And thirdly, if we interpreted the book of Revelation based upon its historical uh, purpose, namely to encourage Christians in the midst of persecution, the book of Revelation would be a far less difficult book than it's become. Now, brethren, that doesn't mean that there aren't difficult things to understand. But I think and I hope that you agree with me as we've been studying the book over the last several months. It's far easier if we keep those three things in mind than it appears. This chapter describes the church from two distinct viewpoints. The first half of the chapter describes the church militant on earth. Sealed by God, thus protected from all of the harm and the tribulation and the difficulty she must go through. Chapter or verse uh, 9 onward describes them having come out of that tribulation. The militant church preserved through the difficulties and hardships of this world. And brought to her eternal reward. And thus from verse 9 onward. The church is described not as militant. But victorious. Not on earth but in heaven. It's the same church. The 44,000 of verse 4. Is one and the same. With the great multitude of verse 9. It's just viewing the church. From two different angles. Well let's look at them. In turn brethren. Somewhat briefly. First, the militant church, verses 1 to 8. In the first couple verses, I think the first three, we find four angels holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Now, by breeze or wind here isn't meant a gentle breeze, but a destructive wind that one day will consume the whole world. And we find, according to verse 3, that these angels are forbidden to allow this wind to blow. Put another way, the angels are kept from destroying the world until the last elect, the last elect sinner, represented there by the 144,000, is sealed, that means saved, and preserved through the tribulation. And so the tribulation that we'll find in the next section is, a, is, is by the tribulation that's, that's described in the next section is meant this world. The time frame from Jesus' first and second comings. All Christians are tribulation saints. All Christians have to endure the tribulation. 
as we learned last week, all Christians live in a time when all four horses exist. Do you remember the four horsemen we saw last week? The white horse, the victorious gospel. The red horse, persecution. The black horse, famine, war, suffering. And then the pale horse, death. Everybody, every Christian has to live through that tribulation. And we find then that God has committed not to destroy the world until the the last elect soul is saved. Now, what I want to do is very quickly show you, I think, the Old Testament context of these verses. And it's not in those prophets that I mentioned. It's actually way back in Genesis chapter 8. Look at verse 21. Now, if I were to say to you that God has promised or committed to preserve the world until his church be saved, what text of scripture would you go to? Well, there's more than one, but there's two key ones. The first one is Revelation 7, the first three verses. That's a key text. But you know, the Old Testament roots of that is found in the, in the uh, Noahic covenant. Look at chapter 8, Genesis eight twenty one, And the Lord smelled a, soothe aroma, a soothing aroma. This is after the ark landed on the mountain. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although his, the uh, imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I've done. In other words, I will preserve it until my Messiah comes. Brethren, that's the heart of the Noahic covenant. The heart of the Noahic promise isn't just that he will no longer again destroy the world with flood, though he will destroy that Jesus coming with fire. That is only a part of it. The main point of it is he's going to preserve a context in which the Messiah would be born and the elect saved. That's the whole point here. Verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night, shall not cease, brethren. The world will continue until God's done with it. Now surely this has an application, doesn't it? Because if a certain politician were to tell us that we have 10 or 12 years until the earth is no more, we would say, well, we know from the Old and New Testaments that the earth will remain until God's done with it. The earth will remain. He's right now telling the four angels not to blow upon the world so as to destroy it. Now surely, brethren, this doesn't deny our need as good stewards to take care of the earth. But it is a remedy against those who would attempt to put us in a bondage of fear concerning the longevity of the earth. The earth will remain. And it's not just me, and it's not just some politician's perspective. It's God's word which tells us 
the earth will remain until the 144,000 are sealed. All right? And we're going to see by sealing is meant saved. And thus it brings us to these questions. First, who are sealed? Secondly, when? And thirdly, why? Notice first in verse 4, back in Genesis, or back in Revelation 7, verse 4. And I heard the number of those who are sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now, by children of Israel here is meant the true Israel, God's people. And then, of course, we have 12,000 taken from each of the 12 tribes. Brethren, these tribes are no more. Ten of them were lost in Assyria, and the other two were destroyed in total in AD 70. What John is here describing is the elect, God's people, his true Israel, who are presently in this world and who are needed to endure through the Great Tribulation. Now let me just say that it's possible that as Jesus' second coming comes closer, that things intensify and there may be a greater Great Tribulation that takes place prior to Jesus' coming. But, but friends, we live in the Great Tribulation. Remember, Paul told the churches in Acts 14, through great tribulation, we must all enter the kingdom of heaven. So the the, uh, 44,000 here in verses 5 and following is a representation of God's people on earth. Now, I want to say, and we don't have the time to, to flesh this out, Again, John is thinking back to Ezekiel and chapter 9. And that's why I suggest to you that, uh, out of many reasons, why it's not literal Israel, it's not 144,000 physical Jews uh, that's here described. It's the true people of God, the elect, on earth. Because if you go back to Ezekiel 9, you may know, some of us just read Ezekiel 9 not long ago in our Bible reading. And I'm not sure if I read that chapter because I don't remember reading that when we read through it. But anyways, I do know that it's in there from from, um, prior study. But if you were to go back in your mind to Ezekiel 9, you know that God is giving the prophet, the son of man, a vision. It's a vision, like we have here, of the destruction that's coming upon Jerusalem for her sin. And then in the vision, he sees a man with an inkwell. And uh, God tells the man with the inkwell to, to write a mark on the foreheads of every person who mourns for the sin of Jerusalem. And then the death angel comes and kills everybody without a mark. And that's exactly what we have here. We have some people marked out of the rest... And those marked are preserved through the tribulation. Furthermore, we're going to see uh, at some point or another that uh, those who are not elect are also marked of sorts. Remember, they take the mark of the beast. 
And the mark of the beast underscores the ownership of of the non-elect to Satan. And we're going to see here in a minute, the seal underscores fundamentally the ownership of the elect to God. Everybody's marked. Let me just put it like that. You either have the mark of the beast if you're not a Christian, or you have the mark of God if you are. You're sealed. Sealed and marking are the two are, are the same things. All right? Who's marked or who's sealed? The elect. Secondly, when are they sealed? Well, they're sealed when they become Christians. Because notice that the world isn't destroyed until the last of this number is sealed, brethren. Now, I don't have to guess here because the, the uh, New Testament letters uh, speak about a sealing. And it's the same sealing that John talks about. And it happens when you become a Christian. Now, let me show it to you very quickly. Look first to Ephesians 1 and 13. Ephesians 1, 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, I, I want to suggest to you that it's not so much that we're sealed. The, the Holy Spirit isn't the seal. The Holy Spirit seals. Um, but they're put so closely together that some commentators would suggest that the Holy Spirit himself is the seal. But either way, it doesn't make a difference. The point here is we're sealed when we believe, right? That's the clear point. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22. Look at verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and, give us this, and given us the Spirit. See, that's why I think the sealing and the Spirit, while connected, have to be distinguished. So we're sealed when we believe, right? Who's sealed? Believers, very simply. So I suggest to you that sealing and, and being saved are the same things. They're simultaneous. They're even synonymous. Being saved and sealed are the same things, okay? Sometimes you hear the Pentecostals talk about being saved and sanctified. Well, every Christian is saved and sanctified. We could even up the Pentecostals. Every Christian is saved, sanctified, and sealed. That's true. Why are they sealed? Well, that's the more difficult question. Well, let me suggest to you, as we look back to Revelation, that sealing underscores many things. Okay, let me just start with that. Um, I wish I knew how many I didn't check before I came. Dr. Beakey in his sermons on Revelation, I think has anywhere between five and seven related meanings of sealing. But most commentators just boil them down and you could take his five or seven and boil them down into two. And that is, it underscores ownership and protection. Think of sealing along, along the lines of a seal that maybe a king would put upon, an, uh, upon a document, right? That's the sealing that, that's most likely here in John's mind. 
a, a stamp, if you will, a seal. And this seal is placed on our forehead. Now, it's figurative, isn't it? It's not a literal seal. But that, that seal, what did it do? It, it underscored ownership. The, the document was, was written. It, it's backed with the authority of the king himself. So Christians are sealed. They, they belong to him. Okay? And because we belong to him, he protects us. And the, the, the notion of protection is all in this text in Revelation 7, isn't it? That's the whole point. We're sealed. The, uh, the winds cannot harm us. Go back to the, to the four horses. The first horse was white. It was the victorious gospel. The other three horses, the red, black, and pale, were all tribulation and hardship that even Christians undergo. But remember, the non-Christian undergoes them as judgments, the Christian as chastisements. In other words, they all come from the lamb sitting on the throne. He's the one loosening the seals. Everything comes on down to earth from him. All these judgments come from him, and they come from him for our good. We saw that last week. All right, and so we find ownership and protection are the essential uh, meanings behind sealing. And I suggest that for various reasons. Um, one being in chapter 14, verse 1, we find that the seal there, well, let me just read that to you. 14, 1, then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion with him 144,000, same people. But notice how they're described there in Revelation 14, 1 having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, Revelation 7 says that they're sealed on their foreheads. It just means that it's evident. This person belongs to God. And because this person belongs to God, this person is protected by God. But that seal is described as God's name. Same thing. It's his stamp of ownership, brother. Christians are sealed. In other words, let me put it like this. You cannot become a Christian and not go to heaven. And I think that's the simple application. You cannot become a Christian and not go to heaven. Everybody saved is sealed. And they're sealed so as to not be destroyed. So ownership and protection necessarily go together. And I think this is also suggested in uh, Revelation 7. I think it's verse 4 or verse 3. Verse 3. Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we've... Until. See, the world will be destroyed. After the last of the 44,000 are saved or sealed. But notice how they're described. Until we have sealed the slaves. That word servants, slaves. Until we've sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads. Now in the first century, it wasn't uncommon for slaves to, to literally bear the mark of their master on their forehead. And John probably has this practice in, in mind. And uh, that was to, one, say, this slave is mine, and B, don't mess with him. 
Brother, that's exactly what we have here. These are mine. These are the purchased one, the saved ones, and thus the preserved ones in the world. Listen to a couple of testimonies. Listen to first to um, Beal. That those who are sealed are called slaves of our God highlights the idea of ownership. Since it was a common practice in the ancient world to mark slaves on the forehead to indicate ownership and to whom they owed service. Hendrickson, Christ having purchased them by his own precious blood owns them. Now we're going to see that in the next section here in a moment. And the Father, through Christ, in the Spirit, protects them. Now he says this, let the winds blow. They will not harm God's people. Let the judgments come. They will not hurt his elect. Brethren, of course, the 44,000 have to endure the winds, but they won't be destroyed by the winds. That's the point. We're not exempt from all that we saw last week. We live in the same world as, as the wicked. The same four horses that come upon them come upon us, but very differently and for different reasons. All right, that brings us secondly to verse 9 and following to the church triumphant. Beginning at verse 9, Paul beholds a glorious scene, not a militant church in the midst of tribulation and thus being preserved but victorious. And uh, notice four things about this victorious church beginning at verse 9. First, their identity. Well, the, uh, the great multitude of verse 9 is one and the same with the 144,000 in the first half of the chapter. It's just, again, describing them differently. The one first half describes them on earth as, as militant, the second half in heaven as victorious. But notice how they're described in more detail in verse 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number. This is a lot of people in heaven, brethren. And then notice, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So this is a great multitude of redeemed sinners taken from every nation of the world. This is the church. This is the victorious bride of Christ. Verse 14 describes them more fully. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Brother, surely this is a beautiful description of a Christian. It's a description of not some Christians, but all Christians. All Christians have come out of the great tribulation. They've come out of this world. They've come out of this world that's characterized by all that we saw last week represented in those three horses, red, black, and pale. And they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Brother, I don't know that um, ordinarily this is true. That if you took a filthy garment 
and dipped it in a bucket of blood, it would come out white. Now, I have to be honest, I haven't done laundry in a while. Actually, 21 years today, <laughs> to be more specific. But I don't think that would happen. This is powerful blood. And by garment or robe, it's meant our souls. And, and I take it to mean that when, when this passage describes these Christians as having white robes, it means they're glorified. It means they're glorified in body and soul. And uh, the source of all of that cleansing, their justification, their sanctification, their glorification, the whole thing, brethren, where is it all traced back to but to the blood? That means Jesus' redemptive work. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Brother, this passage tells us that the blood of Jesus can wash away anyone's sin. It can wash away your sin, my sin. It can wash away the filthiest sinner. It can cleanse the filthiest, most guilty rebel. So they're cleansed. They're tribulation saints who've cleansed their garments in the blood of the Lamb. Notice, secondly, their activity. It's back up in the last half of, of nine. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, palm branches in their hands, crying out, saying, Salvation belongs to the Lord who sits on the throne. Verse 11, they're falling on their faces before the one on the throne, worshiping God. And then they have this beautiful song that begins and ends with amens. Amen, and then you have all of these wonderful things that they're ascribing to God. And, and all of them are, are prefaced with a definite article. The blessing, the glory, the wisdom, the thanksgiving, the honor, the power, the might. All of this is given to him in the highest order. That's the point. And then it closes with this. Amen. But I really like how they're described in verse 15. Therefore... They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. By service is meant priestly activity or worship. We will worship. We will worship God in his special presence. That's what it means in his temple. And then at the end, the one on the throne dwells among them. In other words, brethren, we're going to worship him in heaven with a glorified soul and body for all eternity as spiritual priests in his special, covenantal, glorious presence. Brother, we can't even begin to fathom this. This is unceasing praise to God for all eternity. We can't even praise Him for 10 minutes here. We get sidetracked. You, you read your Bible and you have to reread it. 
I think we read Ezekiel 24 this morning. I read it, read it, read it, and then closed it. Prayed a little bit, got sidetracked. Maybe 15 minutes later, wondered, did I finish my prayers? So I prayed some more, got sidetracked. Brother, that's tragic, isn't it? And it's just as bad in public worship. But there's coming a time when we don't have to, we won't have to reread the text. We won't be sidetracked and we won't have to reboot or restart our prayers because we're going to serve him day and night without the hindrance of remaining corruption. In the words of McChain's hymn, we'll love him then with unsinning hearts. And it's hard to even really, to be honest, imagine that, isn't it? We know just a taste of it here. Brooks put it this way, the rest of heaven, he's talking about the rest, the cessation of of work and labor, the rest. The rest of heaven is not the rest of going to sleep and never waking up. The rest of idleness or sloth or the rest of retirement or loafing about. We, we, we have to rest like that through the day, some of us, and uh, all of us, or many of us, on the Lord's Day. If we're, going to, if we're going to worship with any vigor in the evening. But he's saying the rest, the rest of heaven isn't that kind of rest. Far from it, he says. We shall be busy in heaven. We shall rest from all the labors and trials and struggles with indwelling sin, which, which have been so much a part of our life on earth, but we shall have plenty to do. That's an understatement, isn't it? Thirdly, there's security. Verse 16. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. Brother, these are, these are things that relate back to those three horses. Remember the black or the, uh, the red, black and pale horses and all the tribulation and hardship, the wars and the famine and death and suffering. All that comes with those three horses will be no more. I think also he's possibly thinking back to the, um, do you remember the wilderness journey? The Israelites were for 40 years through the wilderness journey and there they were scorched and all the different hardships they endured through that journey until they entered the promised land. And here it's, it, I think John is utilizing that imagery with regards to God's true Israel. They shall neither hunger anymore, thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. Is, I don't think it's just talking about the heat of the day, though it's included. He's using that figuratively to speak about the difficulties and hardships of this life. All the difficulties, all the hardships, everything represented in those three latter horses are here spoken of in verse 16. They shall be freed from this cursed world. To put it perhaps simply. Verse 16. And then finally their satisfaction. Verse 17. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
In other words, there's not only the ending of affliction, verse 16, but there's the enjoyment of blessing, verse 17. That's heaven. Heaven is being liberated from this world. That's, that's half of it. The other half is enjoying all of the glories and the bliss of the next. Brother, I don't know that you can put this any better. It, you, well, let me rephrase that. You can't put it any better. For the Lamb, who is in the midst of the throne, will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This last Sunday I spoke about how this world is a, a, a valley of tears. And how we're going to weep the loss of our loved ones all the way up into the grave. But brother, we're not going to weep past it. We're not going to weep past it. Because tears of sorrow are not permitted in Emmanuel's land. It's interesting that Christ is both the lamb and shepherd. He's the lamb that shed his blood to redeem us and he's the shepherd that leads us beside still waters. And the, 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 the waters here are described in the most transcendent of ways. Living fountains of waters. Living fountains of waters. The plural underscores the abundance. This is satisfaction. This is not just the cessation of trouble, but it's a possession of eternal bliss. Let me close with this one lesson. Here it is, very simple. Remember the big picture. Christians should believe, understand, meditate upon, and anticipate the glories of heaven. Brother, remember, this is what's happening. The church is undergoing all manner of tribulation and hardship. And John is giving them a vision. Jesus is giving his church a vision to remind them he's on the throne and to remind them the winds, though they blow, though they howl, they will not destroy you. And ere long, I'll come back and I'll judge your enemies. The end of chapter 6. I'll gather all my elect scattered across the four corners of the world. First half of chapter 7. I will glorify them in body and soul. And they shall be with me without sin or tears in the new heavens and new earth, worshiping me for all eternity. And that was to be an encouragement, brethren, to the people. Our best life is coming, brethren. Oh, we have a foretaste of it now. We have the Holy Spirit. But it's just a down payment of that which is to come. And every person who's saved, sanctified, 
and sealed of necessity will enter Emmanuel's land and will know the joys of verses 16 as well as 17. Well, we want to stand at this time then and sing and then we'll come into our season of prayer.